0: morning, let's open the Bible together to Acts chapter six, verse eight. It's on page 9:14 if you're using the Bible there in the Pew rack. If we've not met, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. We do that every week. I do that every week. I'm the one who's up here the most. And if you're here almost every week, please don't grow weary of that, because there's almost always somebody new here, and they don't, they don't know who this is, right? And so we, we want to make sure that you know who's up here speaking. Hey, uh, we don't know all the details for Kent and his family and for any kind of services and so when we do we'll, we'll try to get that out uh, by means of newsletter to you and uh, maybe through a prayer chain through some calls that kind of thing as soon as we are aware of that but we'll we'll know some more information perhaps uh, later today and we'll try to get that out to you. Hey have you seen the news this week there's lots of things happening in the world but this may have been something that slipped your notice uh, this this, this week in the news, 15 churches since January have been closed, have been shut in Algeria, 15. Think, well, that's not very many. They only have 46 churches in Algeria. The National Guard since January has closed 15 of them. That means they went in during the service, they pushed the worshipers out, shut the doors, chained them, and posted a notice, this church is closed. Don't reopen it under penalty of law. In China, even state-sanctioned churches are now being demolished. If you have heard, in China, there is an underground church movement. There are millions and millions of believers in it. But there are also millions of believers in state-sanctioned churches. And even now, the state of China is tearing some of those churches down. Jesus promised his disciples that in the world you would have tribulation, right? He promised that we would be hated as he was hated. That his followers would be mocked and excluded, we'd be misrepresented, we would be persecuted, even killed for following Jesus. That's the way it's always been, and that's the way it will be until Jesus returns. We're continuing our study in the book of Acts this morning, and we t- come to the first Christian martyr's story. His name is Stephen. And I'm sorry that on a Sunday morning we couldn't start with a more cheerful story. of illustration at the beginning of the message but it's serious today in in every way from start to finish Stephen is killed for his faith and a persecution hits these early believers in the church and it hits them so hard that Jerusalem really becomes too hot for many of the believers to stay there so they scatter out from the city and we're going to see that as we as we go through it now I wonder if you might have a question. Why are believers persecuted in the world? I've already told you that Jesus promised it would happen, but what are some of the perhaps horizontal reasons that persecution happens in the world? Let me give you four bullets from Open Doors USA. First, authoritarian governments view Christianity as a threat to power. So think of North Korea or China. Here's the second one. Suspicion of anything outside the majority cultural faith. So if you live in India and you're not a Hindu, Or if you live in Niger and you're not a Muslim, there is suspicion on you because you don't fall in line with the majority cultural faith. You ought to keep that bullet in mind. Extremist groups, number three, who want to destroy Christians. Boko Haram in Nigeria is an example of one of those. And then the last one is official cultural domination of a single faith. You have that in Saudi Arabia, you have it in Malaysia, you have it in Pakistan, you have it in a lot of places in the world. We don't face the same level of persecution for our faith in Jesus that many of our brothers and sisters around the world face. They endure a lot of things. But day by day, Christians in America feel more and more out of step with the culture. For 300 years, the majority Christian faith in the United States either was or felt, at least, Christian. Christians, by and large, felt very comfortable in the United States. We, the, the values and the beliefs of our nation seem to really fall in line with what we might hear from week to week or day by day in our churches. But more than ever, issues, traditional Christian beliefs around the family, around marriage, around parenting, around gender and sexuality, and a host of other subjects... Are less and less acceptable, those traditional Christian beliefs in our culture. I, I, I want to talk about that a bit this morning as we work through this passage, because it means for us in America, as we try to be Acts 1 8 Christians, enabled by the Spirit, to be witnesses for Jesus, that the gospel we claim to believe and the gospel that we share. It's going to intersect in people's lives in ways that it never did before, at least not in a generation. Not in ways that we're very familiar with. And it brings challenges to us as well as we seek to be witnesses. And some of you have come up against that. I heard a couple of stories this week, uh, actually in the context of my Foothills group, and I asked permission if I could share them with you this morning, just as examples of that. One of them was from a woman in in our Foothills group She's a physician. She works in a county hospital. And she was leading a team of students uh, on rounds. And they were in the room of a young woman who was dying of cancer. And she said, as they were getting ready to leave, she said, I felt I should pray and hoped it wouldn't cost me my job. She prayed. When the group left and that team left that she was leading they got down the hallway just a bit and there was a very emotional moment she described between herself a veteran doctor and all of these residents that she had around her and then as they continued to walk down the hallway another one of those students thanked her for praying and asked if she would teach him how to do that. When the spirit urged her to pray for a dying young woman with cancer with her family there and all of those residents there, she felt a pinch of concern about how it might affect her job. But she prayed anyway. And when she prayed, she gave a young student the courage to reach out and ask if he could be taught not just how to minister medicine, but minister grace. Uh, a brother that I know here in our church shared this story. He knows a woman from work who is also suffering from cancer. He talked about her personality and what it used to be like and what it is now because she's been struggling with this disease. It's changed dramatically. And he said, I've been praying for an opportunity to share Jesus with her. It came and he waded in. He started that conversation. He said, I, I asked, hey, how are you doing? And what kind of support system do you have? Do you need anything? And then he began to just offer grace and truth through Jesus. And she said, not yet, not yet. And so he paused and he was careful and talked about a few other things. But then he decided to go back one more time gently to offer Christ. And she said, I'm just, I'm just not there yet. Now, those are not examples of persecution for your faith. But I think they're clear examples to all of us of what many of us face in our culture when we try to share the gospel. There's that pinch of hesitation or concern about what might happen on the other side because of where we're sharing or with whom we're sharing or who might be around and overhear us sharing. And then there's that, there's that, that issue of being you know, treated kind of in an apathetic way or in an antagonistic way when we share the gospel. How do, we, how do we move through those? How do we move through the shifts in our culture and those kinds of hesitations that are in our hearts because of that or those responses that we might get? How do we continue to persevere as Acts 1-8 people with grace? How do our brothers and sisters around the world persevere with grace who face much harsher issues and persecution? Stephen's story gives us the answer to that and I want to look at it in four kind of broad categories we're going to talk about what Stephen said and he said a lot (laughs) and then we're going to see how he suffered we're going to talk about what Stephen saw and finally how God used Stephen's witness so what was it that Stephen said? You'll remember from last week, we talked about the first seven verses of chapter six, and Stephen is one of those seven men appointed by the church to take care of the widows with food distribution. So he's meeting the needs of people in the church. He's, he's, uh, he's keeping the church unified. He's helping the church stay on their missional task. He's full of the spirit and wisdom, the Bible says. He's full of grace and power. But Stephen has moved beyond just serving widows. He's doing more and he's in trouble for it. Look at verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. There it is. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those of, from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now, that synagogue of the freedmen, most likely, most commentators say, it was a group of Jews who had been, who had been enslaved. Now, they've been set free, and they formed a synagogue around this common issue that they had all faced and lived through. And they're disputing with Stephen about what he has to say in his ministry But verse 10 says, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Verse 11, so they secretly instigated men. Good form, right? They secretly instigate men. who say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Note the order of those words. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. There's that council again. And they set up false witnesses. Another example of good form on their part. And these faultlessnesses said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. That's the chief accusations that they make, twofold. He never ceases to speak things, right, about the holy place and the law. He's speaking against those. For we've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. It's interesting that they speak about Moses who when he came down the mountain with the law, his face was shining and he had to cover it. And here's Stephen on trial for his life. And they notice that his face is shining. There's something different about his countenance. And In the chapter seven, verse one, and the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen begins to speak and he speaks for nearly the rest of chapter 7 this all starts with a conflict with some jews they're disputing with stephen about what he's been preaching this conflict spreads out to others through some nefarious means and accusations are flying they drag him forcibly in front of this council now he's standing in front of the same council and the same high priest that the apostles stood before and that jesus had stood before but remember who stephen is stephen isn't an apostle He's just an average Joe Christian guy. Now, God has been doing amazing things through him nonetheless, but that's who Stephen is, and now he's standing on the same spot where Jesus has stood, where the apostles have stood, and he is accused of the one thing for which the Jews could give him the death penalty. They accuse him of saying, because of Jesus of Nazareth, we no longer need the temple, and we no longer need the law. And he answers those two accusations. Are you against the temple? Are you against the law? And then he says a third thing. He talks about something they don't even bring up, that they don't even ask him about. And so what Stephen said, those three pieces, let's think about it for a moment as we walk through it. I'm gonna do it really quickly, all right? He starts at the beginning in verse two with Abraham. Abraham. With Abraham, and he's making an argument about the temple, about that place of worship, and he says, "You know what? God met Abraham over there in Mas- Mesopotamia. Then God was still with him when he was in Haran, and before Abraham ever owned a foot of ground in what we would call the Promised Land, God was with him. You don't need a temple to meet with God, to know God, to hear." from God he brings up Joseph in verses 9 through 16 and he talks about the fact that God was with Joseph where in Egypt of all places then he moves on to Moses he gives Moses the lion's share of the space verses 20 to 44 and where was Moses born in Egypt and God says he was beautiful in his sight And Moses had to flee. Where did Moses go? He went into the land of Midian, more Gentile territory. He met with God on the mountain. And what was it said of that place? It was holy ground. Stephen is making an argument about this temple. Not that they hadn't needed it, but now that it's obsolete. You don't need a temple to meet with God, to be with God, to hear from him. He brings up the tent of the wilderness and in the wilderness in verses 44 and 45. God met with his people in that very simple kind of structure that was mobile. It moved through the wilderness. They took it into the promised land with Joshua. And then he says, David wanted to build God a dwelling place in verse 46. And Solomon, he says, built God a house. And then listen to what Stephen said in verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. And then he goes back to the Old Testament to Isaiah and he quotes him and Isaiah is speaking for the Lord. For the prophet says, and God is saying through Isaiah, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Stephen is saying, brothers, fathers, the God of glory is the God of creation. He made everything with his hands. He is not some tribal deity that can be confined in one single place. There's not a need for a temple to meet with God and worship God, to know God, to hear from God. And his accusers would have pushed back on that. And they would have said, but in the temple, that's where the sacrifices happen, Stephen. And, and how can you possibly meet with God unless you obey the law? And if you don't obey the law, Stephen, well then you need the temple because that's where the sacrifices happen. And that's how you can get right when you disobey the law. And so they're pushing on him and he's transitioning now from the temple to the law. And in verses 38 to 43, he says, listen, you guys have never obeyed the law. Not under Moses and not under Aaron. In fact, under Aaron, what did you do? I'm on the mountain getting the law and you're in the valley building idols with Aaron and then he quotes from the prophet Amos in verses 42 and 43 and he says you know what God judged you for that you built idols and God exiled you out of the land now Stephen is not disregarding the law as they might think in fact he's saying the law is good it reflects the holy character of God You cannot ignore the law. But he's saying, guys, you've never obeyed the law. You you can't keep the law. You never will keep the law. And if Stephen was standing here this morning, he would say the same thing to you and me. It's impossible for us to be good enough for God. We don't even obey our own laws. Think about your life. You've got standards. Do you keep them? all the time? I mean, if we hung a portable MP3 player around your neck and recorded all the advice you'd ever given to anybody, how would, how would it stack up in the end? Followed all that advice, have you? Perfectly? We don't even keep our own rules. And we certainly don't keep God's. And Stephen is saying to them, look, if you are saved by obeying the law, we're all in trouble. We've got a big problem. Stephen is saying, no, you don't need a temple, but yes, you need to obey the law in order to meet God, in order to know God but you can't obey it and so there's this instant tension and so Stephen talks about a third thing that they don't ask him about and you're gonna see why they didn't ask him about it it's the key to everything that he says he says our people have had a terrible track record and every time God sends a deliverer we reject them every time God sends a savior we persecute them and we kill them Think about Joseph. God appointed him to be the savior for his family, but they sell him into slavery in Egypt. Moses, God appointed him to save the people and to bring them out of Egypt, but the first time that he steps up, what happens? He has to run for his life. David, appointed to be the king, the true king of Israel, and he spends a lot of his life running for his life in the wilderness. God sends a prophet, God sends a deliverer, and all we do is reject them. And turn them away and say no. So he talked about the temple and the law and now he's bringing up this terrible track record they have when it comes to the deliverers that God has sent for them and he brings it all together here in verses 51 and 53. In 51 and 53 he tells them this is your problem and in verse 52 he gives them the solution. Look at it. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. They've been discipled, obviously, to not listen to the Holy Spirit. And verse 53, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. I mean, hes that's about as blunt as you can get, right? That would be like me coming in here on Sunday morning and starting with, hey, you stiff-necked people, you're uncircumcised in your hearts. You claim to love God, but you don't keep the law. I've already sort of said that to you. <clears throat> if you didn't catch it, I hope that you did right there, right? It's for all of us. Stephen is looking at them, and he's saying, you claim to know God, you claim to, to follow God, but you're prideful, you're stubborn, you cannot be led. That, that word stiff-necked, that's what it means. You can't be led. You're like a stiff-necked animal who can't be guided God wants to lead you in the right way, but you won't have it. And your hearts are uncertain. Oh, you've got circumcision in your body, but your heart has never been changed. There's something terribly wrong. Your heart is filled with greed. It's filled with lust. It's filled with pride. It's filled with jealousy. You've received the law, but you've never kept it. You need a new heart. You need something that you cannot get on your own. That's what Stephen is pressing in on them, and then he gives them the solution in verse 52. Look at this. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? In other words, if we're going to make a list, let's make a short list. It's a short list, the list of prophets and deliverers and, and, and saviors that God has sent that you didn't reject. The ones that he did send that you did reject is a much longer list, He's, he's exaggerating the point. This is a terrible issue for them. And, the, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. He says, I'm for the law, but you cannot be saved without fulfilling the law. And so what's the answer? The answer is one who has fulfilled the law. The answer is the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered of all the things that Stephen could have referred to Jesus as, he calls him the righteous one. He says that because in order to fulfill the law, that means you're righteous, right? You fulfill the law, you become righteous. And Jesus is the only one who's ever done that. And so he refers to him as the righteous one. But how did Jesus fulfill the law? Now we're having to think just a bit, right? So you either fulfill the law by obeying the law Or when you disobey the law, you pay the price and you fulfill the law. So there's a stop sign right about there. So let's talk about the law of the stop sign. How do you fulfill the law of the stop sign? Well, When you pull up there at the corner of 21st and Chandler, you stop, that's what the law says, stop. Don't proceed through the intersection until you stop. That's what the law is. How do you fulfill the law of the stop sign? You either fulfill it by stopping, obeying the law, or you run the stop sign, get a ticket, and pay for it. Either way, you've fulfilled the law. The law can't can't put its hands on you because you've either paid the price for your disobedience or you've fulfilled the law by being obedient to it. Jesus fulfilled the law because he lived his life perfectly before God. He's the only human being that's ever walked the planet that did that. I haven't done it. You haven't done it. Nobody will ever do it. None of us have ever fulfilled it the law of God. None of us ever can because we're broken by sin. We're sinners by nature and by our choices. But Jesus did it. He fulfilled the life, the life that God called him to. He lived perfectly before God. He earned the blessing of eternal life through his obedience. But when Jesus went to the cross, what's that about, right? I mean, he went as a criminal. He was innocent, He didn't deserve to be there. His life was perfect, the law couldn't make a claim on him but Jesus went there, he was rejected. He was betrayed, he was forsaken in our place for our sins. He substituted himself for us, the righteous one for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. That's what the cross is about. He he took the penalty for your disobedience and for mine in himself. And in exchange, he gives us his righteousness. When you trust in Christ, when you repent of your sins, he becomes your righteous one. He becomes your righteousness. The moment you trust in Christ, the penalty for your sin is is accounted to him. And his righteousness is given to you. And you have eternal life. Stephen is saying Jesus is the new temple. He's the fulfillment of the temple, the fulfillment of the law, because Jesus is the final perfect sacrifice from God. He's the one and the only one that can give you and me a new heart. Stephen's sermon did not convince them. They were enraged. You need to imagine a group of very dignified noblemen starting to raise their voices, gnash their teeth, cover their ears. And rush at him. And they take him out of the city. And they stone him to death. This is not a quick death. It's brutal. It's ugly. It's terrible. And that's what these men did to Stephen. In chapter 6, verse 15, we looked at it earlier it said his face was like the face of an angel. He's on trial for his life, but he's not afraid to tell them the truth. And in the process, as they're killing him, he begins to pray for them, and he asks God to intervene on their behalf and not hold their sin against him. And then in verse 58, there's this interesting, interesting little caveat, this very interesting point of the text. It says, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man, Named Saul. And here you see the rest of the picture. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he, he fell asleep. I, I think it's interesting that Saul is there. He witnesses this murder. He approves of it. Chapter 8, verse 1. Saul, many of you know, later becomes who? The Apostle Paul. Yeah, and I believe Stephen's sermon really stuck with with Paul or with Saul because when you read the New Testament letters, when you read the letters to the churches, you hear these themes from Stephen's sermon rung out one after the other in the letters that Paul writes to the churches. It stuck with him. Now, it didn't change him in the moment. He was approving of this, but God used it. Stephen changed the world, not just by what he said but even how he how he suffered did you see that Saul had never seen anyone suffer the way Stephen did and i think that it had an impact on him can i give you a little piece of application right here just parenthetically the, the sermons you preach and you realize if you're a believer in Christ your life is preaching a sermon And let me let me say this to you, the sermons that you preach in your pain and your discomfort and your challenges and and all of the discouragement, the, the sermons that you preach in those moments are louder than the ones you preach in your times of blessing. They resonate, they land with more weight, and they stick in people's hearts and minds. That was true, I think, in Stephen's situation. So it's not just what Stephen said, it's how he suffered. And the secret to suffering, like Stephen did here, is in what he saw. What he saw. Look at verses 55 and 56. We're going to back up just a bit. In fact, let me just go back to verse 54. Now when they heard these things, that that counsel, they were enraged, we talked about that, they ground their teeth at him, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, you might want to circle that, and he said, behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing, there it is again, at the right hand of God, and they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. The Bible tells us on several occasions. In fact, that's the Apostle Paul, more often than not, who says that Jesus, when he was crucified and when he was risen from the dead, he ascended to the Father and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. But here, Stephen says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Well, why is that? Why, why, why is Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father? It's a contrast to what's going on in the work of the temple Because those priests could never sit down. The work of atoning for sin was ongoing. That work was never finished. They were on their feet constantly offering one sacrifice after another, after another, fruitlessly hoping to somehow make an offering for sin that would stick. But the Bible tells us that Jesus... After the cross, after the resurrection, once he's ascended, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Why is that? Because the work of redemption was completed and finished. There wasn't anything else to be done. Jesus did it. Stephen's in an earthly courtroom, but he looks up and he sees into this heavenly courtroom and what does he see? He sees his advocate on his feet, making his defense. Before God. I love what F.F. Bruce said in his commentary on Acts. While Stephen was confessing Christ before men, Christ was confessing Stephen before God. Doesn't that make you think of 1 John chapter 2? It says, Little children, I write these things unto you that you might not sin. But if anyone does sin, he has an advocate with the Father who? Jesus Christ, get this, the righteous. In Hebrews chapter seven, whoever wrote Hebrews says, he is able to save to the uttermost all those who come to him through Christ because he ever lives to make intercession for them. The earthly courtroom is rejecting Stephen, but the heavenly courtroom is receiving him. There wasn't anybody on earth speaking up for Stephen, but Jesus was standing and speaking for him in heaven. And what do you think? Jesus might have been saying, can we have a little holy speculation? I want to stay between the the lines, all right, right in the middle of the road, because I think it's safe to say that it could have been something like this. Father, I know that my people have sinned. I know that my brother has sinned. Stephen was not perfect. And I know that his sins need to be paid for but I paid for his sins on the cross. I shed my blood so that his sins would be covered and forgiven and my righteousness has been given to him. So it's my righteousness that he wears and therefore there is now no condemnation to those, Father, who are in me. He belongs to me, Father, and he belongs to you. He's one of ours. We want to welcome him in. Stephen died a terrible, terrible death. But it didn't matter in the moment. They're raging at him. They're hurling stones at him. They're crushing the life out of him. Why didn't it matter? Because this wasn't just something he knew in his head. It had sunk down into his heart. And listen, to the degree that you and I are in awe of the degree that God loves us through Christ, and that we belong to him, it doesn't matter how the culture shifts under our feet and how difficult it becomes to relate to people whose beliefs and values are so very different from ours. It's not, we face challenges like that. And so we suffer and we have pain. But if we know all of those things and it's deep in our hearts, we can face all of that with perseverance and even with grace the same way Stephen did. Now, I don't want to be accused of being overly simplistic, right? I I know that we live with a tension in the world. I, I want you to think for a moment about these men that Stephen is preaching to. Why is it that they rejected now Jesus, ultimately, finally? Why did they turn him away? I wanna say to you that I believe they turned him away because Jesus was a threat to them. Uh, they, they turned Jesus away because he threatened their ultimate love because they were in love with their position. They were in love with themselves. They were in love with the fact that they were rulers over the people. They had a place. They were in love with the culture that they had built and everything was comfortable and it was all right and they were in love with all of those things and, and, and they, they were at home in this place but now Jesus comes and he's threatening all that. They're at home with the shadows But Jesus came to bring them the reality, and they wouldn't have it, and they rejected him. Beloved, I I think that we need to check our hearts, particularly for us in America. We need to be careful that we're not so at home here, that we are not so in love, right, with the culture as it has been or the way perhaps we remember that it used to be. We gotta be careful what we're in love with, what we've given our hearts to, where we really feel like we're at home. When the culture shifts and things change and it becomes difficult because now we're encountering people who are very different. They believe things that are very different from us. They have values that are very different from us. We have to be careful we don't pull away from those people and disengage from them because they so desperately need Jesus Just like I desperately need Jesus, just like you desperately need Jesus, more and more we need to press in if we're going to be Acts 1-8 people to be enabled by the Spirit, not to be so at home here, so in love with this place, so that when we, we know that we've been loved by our Heavenly Father and by Jesus, we have His love. And that love, that treasure is enough in the face of pain, in the face of those challenges, in the face of persecution and suffering. In fact, not even death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have it. So listen, if knowing Jesus and walking with Jesus, if that's your greatest love, if that is the highest reality to which you long for and cherish, then there isn't anything that can separate you. From that, no matter how different it becomes in this nation of ours, no matter how challenging it becomes, or no matter what kind of suffering you may face, even for your witness for Christ, you'll be able to move through it and persevere in it and do it with grace. What did Stephen do? Verse verses one through three of chapter eight. It says here that Saul approved of his execution. God used Stephen to bring glory to himself, to spread the gospel. Do you remember Acts chapter one, verse eight? I've referenced it several times. Jesus told his disciples, guys, the gospel is not just for Jerusalem. It is for all those living in Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. Go. But here we are in chapter eight, and they haven't gone, and Stephen uses the death of his choice servant, Stephen, and a terrible persecution to push his people out of their comfort zone and engage them in the one thing that their lives were supposed to be about in this world. And all of that came to bring glory to God and to spread the gospel and that's what the rest of the book of Acts shows us as we walk through it. So we don't face the same level of persecution and suffering and challenges that many of our brothers and sisters around the world face for the sake of the gospel but when you hesitate out of a fear or a concern about what it might cost you or when you come up against someone who's put you off with a sort of apathetic response to the gospel or they've been antagonistic about the gospel with you I want to plead with you not to be too discouraged and don't quit don't give up instead look up look up and see your advocate standing there on your behalf, making his argument before the Father. This one is mine. He belongs to us. Because when you see what Stephen saw, you're gonna do what Stephen did. We're gonna sing a song that might be new to some of you, but as we close this morning, one of the lines says this, behold him there, the risen Lamb, My perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. Stephen was convinced of that, even in the face of death. One with himself, I cannot die. My life, my soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hidden with Christ on high, with Christ, my Savior and my God. Let's stand up together and sing.